All right. Um, we have a ton of information to cover. So I think that this week is normal, that there's nothing out of the ordinary going on. So no real announcements. And here's what we're going to do. Last week, we covered the first three chapters of the letter to the Ephesians. Today, we're going to cover the final uh, three chapters. So chapters four, five, and six. And here's the reality. I could speak without taking a breath for the next four hours with this information. There is so much in here. It is so rich. But we're going to try and cover it in just a couple. I am really bad. Do you hear all the ringing and echo? Is it in my head? Probably. I listen to much loud music. Check one, two. Working on it. Oh, it's you. Sorry, I'm looking at John. You're the one that's working on it. Um, all right, back to reality. So we have a ton of information to cover. And this is where I mentioned last week that there is, there is a wealth of instruction to pause and to go slow through the Word of God verse by verse and really dig into the nuances. And at the same time, there is a, there is a, um, a richness to covering large sections of Scripture all together at the same time. Remember, this is a letter to the Ephesians. I'm just going to grab his microphone. Can I just grab that? All right. You don't have COVID, do you? There's a proverb in Calvary. Blessed are the flexible. They shall not be broken. Amen? All right. So... So we have a lot to cover. As we cover this, I told you last week that um, not heavy focus on teaching this morning, but heavy focus on amplification as we read through these verses. Last week, uh, I broke this out. I, I defined it as the first three chapters really cover a lot of doctrine about who God is, the exposure the manifestation, the revelation of who God is towards us. Now, when we sit in the Word of God, it is consistent from cover to cover where God is giving us an um, insight into his nature and into his character. So in these first three chapters, that, that overarching theme is really God's character of grace. What does it mean that God is gracious? What does it mean that grace is an attribute of who he is? And listening to all of these incredible things that Paul discussed and that we have been blessed in the heavenly places with Christ. We've been redeemed. We're adopted as children. Uh, he has been exalted above all that has ever been created because he created it all ultimately. Jesus is the head of the church. We all used to be disobedient and the children of wrath, but God who is rich in mercy, he has saved us according to the riches of his grace. Again, his grace is, it's an expression of who he is in his nature and character. 
The last three chapters in, in this letter to the Ephesians really focus on our response to it. Often we'd say it's doctrine and duty, and I'm focusing on grace and gratitude. So we really want to press into the idea of gratitude this morning. In your understanding of who God is that created you, how do you express gratitude to him? How do you express thanksgiving for who he is, for what he's done, for what he's promised? This is the instruction that Paul's writing to the Ephesians as he's declaring who God is, all that God has done, who we are in Christ as Jews and Gentiles. And remember, this is, this is a really uh, antagonistic groups to one another, Jews and Gentiles. But they've been made one in Christ. As we sit in this gratitude that we have, the, the words oneness are going to come out. The idea of newness is going to come out as we read through this this morning. So I'm going to stop commenting on instruction or on background because we really do have a lot to cover this morning. Um, and this is so rich. So Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I'm begging you, I'm imploring you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We're going to pause on this whole idea. So what, what does it mean that your calling from God has worth? What's its value to you? What's, what is the, this whole idea that there is a being who has created you, who loves you, who became like you, who died for your sins, has given you life, this being that you bend the knee to, how much value do you place on him calling your name? Chris, come to me. Karen, come to me. Joshua, come to me. I've called you. I've named you. I've created you. I've saved you. I love you. How much value do you attribute to that calling? And that's what Paul is encouraging. What, what, how does that gratitude for that calling play out in your life? That's the encouragement to walk worthy, live in a way that demonstrates value and gratitude to who God is, um, not just in his being, but who he is personally to you and how he has called you and chosen you and prepared you. Incredible. The example through all of this, Jesus is always our example. So when you look at these words in verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of grace. If you look at those attributes, those are all the attributes of God. These are all definitions for who Jesus is as the Messiah, as he was a man, he was lowly, he was gentle. God is patient. He bears with us in love. He goes after the hard work, endeavoring to keep unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. And again, remember this unity, this oneness, as he is writing to Jews and to Gentiles. That's specifically the group that he's talking to, and we can apply that in our culture. Um, whether it's black or white, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, whatever class of people you want to separate humanity into. In Christ, we are made one. And the, the biblical story of the fullness of this picture is what happened at the Tower of Babel. 
Mankind was one at the Tower of Babel, and as mankind is one, they are in the pursuit of evil. And God divided mankind intentionally into their nations and into their places to limit human beings' capacity to sin. Because it's only as we are one in him, that as we are brought together as one in him, that now we have the capacity to bring God glory. Humanity, apart from Jesus, still needs to be divided and separated into their places and into their groups. It is only in Christ, in his holiness, in his righteousness, where this oneness is to play out. And look at the definitions again. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And that's not just us in this room. This is all believers, all time, one. But, so that's talking about the group. Now to the individual, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is, this is, I talked about owning some things last week. And again, we need to own a lot of, we need to own everything that God describes to us. But to each one of us, to you individually, specifically, grace has been given. In all of his fullness. Verse 8, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So this quote out of Psalm 68, um, this idea that Jesus ascended. And when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. Those of us, which is all humanity, who were captive to sin and to death, he led through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascended. He first stepped off the throne, descended into this earth. There's also the idea that where was Jesus' spirit the three days that his body was in the tomb? He was in paradise. He was preaching the gospel. And I mean, there's different scriptures that we can go into there. But the emphasis here is that when he ascended to heaven, he turned around and gave gifts to men. And we see that fulfilled on the day of Pentecost and every day since then. So this is the emphasis. So verse 11, these gifts. He himself, Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. As we go through this, this is a, a section of scripture uh, for Calvary's as a whole, for so many, where this is really core to uh, the philosophy of ministry and how we go about serving the Lord together and what our focus is to be on. So listen, so here Jesus is giving the gifts, gifts of his grace to individuals for the purpose of giving those individuals to the body of Christ. There is nothing here that we are supposed to exalt a name, to exalt a denomination, to exalt a pastor, to exalt a prophet, a leader, all of these things. The, the emphasis here, these gifts are given for a specific reason, and here they are. Verse 12, 
These gifts have been given for the training, for the equipping of the saints. These gifts have been given for the work of ministry, for the work of service. These gifts have been given for the edifying, for the building up of the body of Christ. And what's, what's the goal? What's the aim? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro like waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, of teaching, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth and love may grow up, may increase in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit, literally united together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working, according to the operation by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Look at the picture that's being given. Why, why did Jesus give these gifts to men when he ascended? Because he wants his image to be stamped upon and imprinted on every single one of us. So it's every single one of these roles. Paul, he can sit in every single one of these giftings, right? Paul was an apostle. Paul was a prophet. Paul was an evangelist. Paul was a pastor and teacher. He sat in every single one of these as he's engaging human beings out there um, sharing the gospel. And not just sharing the gospel, but strengthening people in the gospel. Strengthening people in their relationships with the Lord. But there's a, there's a focus on all of this. And the focus is Jesus and Jesus alone. So when we say it's all about Jesus, ministry, the gathering of the church, worship, teaching, Every program, everything that we are doing has Jesus as the target. He's the only reason why we exist. He's the only reason why we have life. He's the only reason why we worship, why we teach. It's the goal is so that Christ would be formed in me. As I sit and study and read, Jesus is being formed in me. He is imaging himself in me. He is transforming me into his image. As I come up here, I'm not to promote my name, the church, a doctrine, a, a philosophy of ministry, anything. I am up here to tell you about Jesus and Jesus alone. And we get to do that in a variety of contexts. So whether it's worship, what's the worship focused on? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he's done. What do I do every single week? I open up his word. I'm not here to motivate you with men's philosophies. I'm not here to give you self-help information. I'm not here to make you a better person. I'm here to tell you that I am a beggar in desperate need of the God who created me and loves me. And all I get, I get the privilege of just being able to share with you and pointing you to the same person where I find life in. I'm not here for the attaboy. I'm not here for the accolades. I am here for you to be trained as a saint. I'm here to help you to be built up in the body of Christ that all of us together, and this isn't me independently, but again, there's, there's gifts that are given. There's gifts that are given to each one of us. And those gifts aren't for personal exaltation. They're so that Christ would be formed in all of us. 
And again, there's, there's a goal, there's an aim. It's till Jesus is perfectly formed in each one of us. That means until every single one of us individually or corporately stand together in Jesus' presence. That's the aim. That's the target in everything that we do as we follow him. So, incredible definition of ministry. Verse 17 says, I say, therefore, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk. Again, the course of life is the rest of the Gentiles walk. This is who we were apart from Jesus and the futility, the emptiness of their mind. Having their understanding, their mind and their thoughts darkened, being alienated, estranged from the life of God because of the ignorance, which literally the lack of discernment that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling calloused, having given themselves over to lewdness, uh, abandonment to yourself, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as truth is in Jesus. One of the things that's, I want you to see as you read through not just this letter, but through all of the scripture. It's, God is always talking about our mind. What is it that you think about? What is it that you meditate on? How do those thoughts impact your speech? How do those thoughts impact your actions? So here, the, the prayer, so in the first couple of chapters, Paul had two incredible prayers. Those prayers revolve around your mind. They revolve around your knowledge and understanding in who God is. And as you're exposed to his grace, what happens? We grow in it. We mature in it. We come to greater understanding, not just cognitively, but experientially in our lives. So as we go through this text, there's, there is a war for our minds. We all sit in this war every single day. We sit in a war with our flesh where, no, I'm not going to think that way. The Holy Spirit is right there inside of me, and I start thinking about something or somebody that's off. The, the Holy Spirit is right there to convict me and to, to lead my mind in light rather than darkness. We sit in the opinions of others. We can sit in the religious opinions of others that have nothing to do with the word of God and they have everything to do with the traditions of men. We can sit in political um, discussions and debates that compete for the thoughts of our mind and those thoughts can have nothing to do with the truth that is in God's word and have everything to do with the truths that the culture is attempting to preach and communicate. We're going to talk about when we get into chapter 7, there's a, there's a war in the mind in regards to Satan and his activities. So we have that voice to fight and battle against also. So in all of this, there's a definition. This is who we used to be. This is what our mind looked like when it was dead, when it was disobedient, when it was dark, when it was alienated from the life of God. But the transition, the contrast, but you there in verse 20, this is not how you've learned about the Messiah, about Jesus. If indeed, and I love this, if you've heard him and you've been taught by him, again, he's speaking to people that never saw Jesus in the flesh, yet we've heard his voice and he's teaching us daily. The truth is in Jesus and Jesus alone. 
And there's this encouragement here as we go down through uh, a lot of this information, putting off things and putting on things in replacement. Verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, back to the mind. May he give us new minds daily. And all the subject matters that we have to process through. May he renew us in the spirit of our minds. May we know and understand that we have been recreated according to God in true righteousness and holiness, both definitions of who God is. Verse 25, therefore, things to put off, putting away lying. So in place of lying, what are we supposed to do? Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. We are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. And all of us can sit in agreement that anger is definitely a playground of the devil. How many physical and verbal, um, we'll say, atrocities have occurred because we submitted to anger as the devil is stirring that up. No, we're not to submit to that. Be angry, but do not sin. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather, the contrast, let him labor, work, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. So rather than being a thief, put that off. What do you put on? Generosity. Verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. Again, that word means to build somebody up, that it may impart what? Grace to the hearers. Again, look at this definition. Who is gracious? God is gracious. So when you speak to others, what are we to leave in that individual's mind? God. Let your speech impart, give, share grace for the person that you're speaking to. And again, grace is imparted even in a moment of rebuke, in a moment of challenge, in a moment of an argument. In the moment of anger, where it's righteous anger, but you're not sinning, there's still an imparting of God's grace and who he is and his nature and his character. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which I think is a fascinating subject to sit and meditate in. And I'll leave you with that. But the idea that we can grieve God, the God who knows us, who knows our past, present, and future, that the thoughts of your mind, the words of your mouth, the actions that you um, choose to participate in can cause sorrow and grief to the Almighty God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. What do you put on instead? Be kind to one another. Let your hearts be tender to one another. Forgive one another, even as Christ forgave you. And you can go and sit in Jesus' teaching on this when he gives us, teaching us how to pray. That we are to forgive just as we have been forgiven. And that if we refuse to forgive, God will not forgive us. As Jesus is on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The people who were executing him, torturing him. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant. They're in darkness. Their minds are blinded by the God of this world. Forgive them, Lord. And get them in love and in your grace. Chapter 5. And the, the emphasis on all of this is always Jesus. How did Jesus forgive? Well, go look at him. And there's your example. Chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear, dear children. Imitate Jesus in all of these things. He is our example. So as we are supposed to walk in a way that is worthy, so we can talk about having a, a heart that is filled with gratitude and an understanding of the value of our calling here. It's walking in gratitude in regards to his love. Walk in love. How? It's Jesus also loved us, has loved us, and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. There's really where I'm picking up that word gratitude from in this section. All these old things, all these things that are just come to us so naturally. Rather, let there be a mind and a heart and a mouth and a life filled with giving of thanks. Again, this is, this is being a definition. This is defined for us as what it looks like to walk in love as Jesus did. Verse 5. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. There's no changing of what that says. No fornicator, that's all sexual sin outside a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. No unclean person, all the different ways that our flesh is stained by self, the world, and the devil. Nor a covetous man, a greedy man, always looking for what others have and want it for themselves, which is ultimately defined as an idolater. That individual does not have inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, empty philosophies, empty reasonings. 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't fellowship with them. Don't participate in, those, in that life, that old life. Verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That is a stamp of identity. You were once dark, but through your faith in Jesus, you are now light in him, in the Lord. So walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Again, this is the great adventure and journey that we're all on. Lord, how can I please you today? In my activities, in my actions, in my speech, in my thoughts, Lord, let me know what's acceptable to you and pleasing to you. Not in, not in this burden, but Lord, just as a, an expression of gratitude to who you are and what you've done. Verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose those things. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Walking in worthiness, walking in love, walking in light. Here in verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly. This means to walk in wisdom. So, every single one of you sat down in a chair by faith that the chair was going to hold you up. To walk circumspectly means that you would examine that chair. You'd walk around the chair. You'd look at, uh, you know, are all the screws in place? Are the the legs stable? Is anything broken? Rather than just taking it by faith and just trust that this is just going to hold me up. There's been circumstances where people thought a chair was going to hold them up and it didn't hold them up, right? So this whole idea of walking circumspectly is in all things in life that you're asking the Lord and having a conversation with him. Lord, how do I need to interact with my spouse today? Lord, this is what's going on in my child's life. How do I lead them? How do I teach them? How do I instruct them? Here's what's going on in the world, Lord. Give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to know what is true and what is false. So walking circumspectly has this, it it is the idea that in our daily journey, in our daily life as we follow Jesus, that we're asking questions. Rather than just going through the motions of life and not paying attention to self, not paying attention to those around us, just doing our own thing as we see fit. And we all know what this looks like to just go through life and go through the motions, right? And then we all know at the same time what it looks like to actually pause. Lord, I need your mind right now. I don't need my mind. I don't need my reasoning. I don't need the wisdom of other people. I need your counsel. I need to walk circumspectly. And again, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. The days were evil on Paul's day. Days are evil in our day. The days have been evil ever since Satan first stepped into the garden and started whispering lies about God. Verse 17, therefore do not be unwise, but understand, again, all this in relation to the mind, understand what the will of the Lord is. How? Well, don't be drunk with wine and which is dissipation, but be filled 
with the Spirit. Holy Spirit, fill us the mind of Christ. Verse 19, I love this. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. It's like what we were just doing in singing all of these songs. This is singing to not just to God and not just to ourselves, but we're singing to one another. These psalms and these hymns, making melody in our hearts because of our knowledge and understanding and growth in God's grace and who he is and the wonder of who am I in you, Lord, and figuring all these things. This is how we communicate to one another, even as we worship. So worship, you can go sit in the Psalms and so much of the, the attention of the Psalms is clearly directed to God. But clearly a lot of that language is directed to your own heart. And so much of the language is also directed to the hearers, to other human beings. So that we would know and understand again who God is and who we are in him. All right, verse 21. This should be circled in your Bibles. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. If you want to know and understand what submission is, you need to look at Jesus in his relationship with his father. That is the biblical definition of submission. Did God the father abuse the son? Never. Perfect relationship. Did the son fully trust the father? Absolutely in all things. So you look at what it's like for Jesus in his humanity to submit to his father. That is the example. So as we go through the rest of this, verse 22, it says wives, which in the Greek, wives and women is the exact same word in the Greek. Context dictates how we translate it. So we could say women submit to all men. Is that what it says? What does it say? Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So again, this, this, as we go through this passage, this is one of those um, cultural implications as men have dominated women culturally. Again, when you just sit in the truth of what God is communicating in the roles between men and women, where do we look for definition? We look to the creator to define who a man is, who a woman is, what that marriage relationship looks like in him. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve and look at how they complement one another. It was not good for Adam to be alone. Therefore, God created Eve to complement Adam. They were to walk together side by side. But at the same time, there is, there's roles. Men are different than women. Husbands are different than wives. We have different roles to... Uh, pursue and allow God to bring about and develop as, and again, in all of our marriages, uh, there's a constant growth as we grow in the Lord and as we grow in our relationship with our spouse. And before I go on, the, go on through this, this is a, we all have to own this passage just like we have to own the rest of the God's word. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that he is your king, that he is your Lord, you bend the knee to him, there's no argument with this. These are our instructions. And again, we need to make sure that we don't misapply, misinterpret, teach all of man stuff. If you don't agree with these terms in regards to marriage, do not get married. If you are a believer and you are married, you can't undo it. So you have to own this, 
right? I have to own this. Julie has to own this in our relationship. Um, And when both of you individually as couples are aimed at Jesus in your life, all of these instructions become really easy and they're really beautiful. When somebody is off, when somebody's aimed at the flesh, this becomes very difficult because something's off, something's broken, somebody is not aimed at Jesus. So we need to be aimed at Jesus independently and together. So now the instruction, wives, submit. Again, definition of submission. Wives, go talk to Jesus and look at him and his submission. To your husband as to the Lord, your own husbands. This is not to men. This is in the marriage relationship as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, and by example, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. It doesn't mean that the husband is the savior of the wife. Again, the, the, he's defining a lot just who Jesus is and how we are to follow his example. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands, and everything. And again, in the everything, yes, that is qualified by um, in submission in everything in Jesus. If your husband's telling you to sin, feel free to stand up and not. Now, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. And ultimately, here's the instruction. Remember verse 21. We need to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. Verse 33, let each one of you in particular, men, so love your own wife as himself. And let the wife, women, see that you respect your husband. I have never, ever had to go to Julie and say, submit. I have never had to go to Julie and say, respect me. There has been times when she rises up in rebellion and wants to do her own thing. There are times where she has not respected me. There are times where I have not loved my wife as Jesus has loved the church. There are times where I have not sacrificed for her as I was instructed to. And in our relationship as husband and wife, she has never had to come to me and say, love me. We've each depended upon who we are individually in hot pursuit of Jesus. There's been many times where Julie has had to wait for Jesus to transform me to be the man that she needs me to be. 
These aren't demands where we come in and it's the same thing with the, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. They're never to come and say, you will submit to me in this role and office that I have. That's never the heart of God. Everything's an expression of gratitude. I have great gratitude and how gracious God has been to me and the woman that he gave to me to be my wife. And I personally, I want nothing more than to exemplify this text and my behavior towards her. And I can't. So God help me. I love her. She loves me. I respect her. She respects me. We submit to one another in the name of Jesus and all things. Children, obey your parents. Boys, you listening? Just making sure. Oh, wait a minute. My dad's in the room too. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. Why? Because it's right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, for, to understand this whole idea of do not provoke your children to wrath, how many of you guys have kids? Uh, men and women, how many of you have kids? How many of you have ever been provoked to wrath by your child? Everybody? This is the idea of the instruction to fathers. Don't be a child, grow up. Be a dad. Be a man in Jesus. Children are untrained. They act in their flesh. They do these things that provoke wrath in us as parents because they're, they're being disobedient. They're not listening to the room. How many times? I told you to clean up your room a hundred times, and I have to tell you every single day, clean your room, right? We get provoked to wrath. And the whole idea is that a child needs to be trained in the admonition of the Lord, in the love of the Lord, in the grace of the Lord, and who he is. And that takes time. But the reality is for a parent, especially for a father, don't be a child. Don't act like a child as you interact with your children, but be a man, be a father, be a leader, be loving, be correcting, be a teacher, be an instructor. We have this in uh, Deuteronomy chapter six. When you wake up in the morning and you go throughout the day and you put your head on the pillow at night, what are you supposed to be doing, moms and dads? Keep telling your kids about the grace of God and who he is. Bond servants. All right, we got to fly. Be obedient to those who are your masters. So clearly in our culture, we translate employee, employer here. But we also have to remember the context, the reality of this culture. According to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In all this an expression of gratitude to who God is, regardless of life circumstances. Verse 7, with goodwill during doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them. Identical instructions that the bond servants are to have towards masters, same instructions apply for masters to 
They're slaves in this context. Do the same things to them, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. And clearly in all of this, these are instructions to believers. These are not instructions for the outside culture as a whole. Um, These are instructions for Husbands and wives and children and parents and bondservants and masters that are all bending the knee to Jesus. Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I have Psalm eighteen thirty nine written in my Bible here. It says, you have armed me with strength for the battle. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes, the plans of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Lots of declaration here, but ultimately that our strength is found in our God. He has the power to create the heavens and the earth. He has the power over death. He, the power of the resurrection is the power that abides in us. We are strong in the power of his might. There's all kinds of lies out there, uh, not just in the world, but ultimately that uh, the schemes of the devil, it's his voice against all these spiritual hosts of wickedness that are being defined here. The evil day, this has always stood out for me. I heard this from Alistair Begg one time at a, at a conference. He said, the evil day is defined as when you have the desire to sin. The devil is there tempting you to sin and you have the opportunity to sin. And you can remove one of those. You can, you can have the opportunity to sin and the devil can be, can be tempting you. But if you don't have the desire to sin, it's not going to happen. You know, you're, you're standing in the Lord's strength. Just it's a good handle to kind of get an example of what does the evil day look like in your life? Or look back historically, those, those events in your life when you uh, totally rebelled against God and you would define as an evil and dark day. You watch all of this activity. We abandoned the Lord's strength in some fashion, attempted to stand in our own strength, and we lost the battle. Worship team, come on up, and the rest of you, let's stand. And we're going we're gonna to stand because the Bible tells us to stand here. And many of us, we've heard the teaching in this as we are to put on the whole armor of God that Paul has before him, the imagery of a Roman soldier, which is very true. So you look at the gear of a soldier at this day and time, or even prior to this, you can look at many cultures and look at their gear, and he's using that gear to define principles. But what's wrong is that the emphasis is not upon the Roman gear. The emphasis is upon who Jesus Christ is. So if you're taking notes, you can go back and listen to this. Uh, you can come up and grab these verses too. But it's Isaiah 11.5, 49.2, and 59.17. Every single one of those verses is a description of who the Messiah is. Every single one of those descriptions in Isaiah is what Paul is latching onto in this description here as we stand in the strength of his might. So 
It says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. The Messiah is truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The Messiah is righteousness. Having your feet, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Look at the words of Jesus in the gospel, the good news that he proclaimed. Again, descriptions in Isaiah. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you may know of my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. And here's the prayer. Peace to the brethren and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen.